0: Well, as you know, my entire family was able to join me a few weeks ago in the U.S. It was our first time to go back as a family since we moved back to the Philippines uh, nine years ago this July. And while in the U.S., my children were able to experience many firsts, one of the first things they were able to do was that they were able to fly a kite for the very first time. Uh, My American friends were quite shocked that my kids had never flown a kite I told them, if you flew a kite in Metro Manila, you would probably get electrocuted. Uh, You know, all the power lines that uh, run through this entire city. And so we wanted to give them this experience, and we bought some kites, and I assembled it, and we took them to the park. Uh, Driving to the park, they kept asking about 101 questions, so excited uh, that they would get a chance to fly the kite. Most of their questions centered on the fact, Daddy, will the kites fly? I assure them, children, do not worry. Daddy is an expert kite flyer. Do not worry. These kites will fly. Well, we got to the park and we had everything set up. I taught them the basic. There really isn't much to teach regarding kite flying. But then we were ready to go. But at the moment we were ready to let loose the kites, the little breeze that was there stopped. There was no wind. So for 30 minutes without wind, we tried in vain. I tried in vain to make these kites fly to no avail. As you can imagine, my children were very disappointed. Uh, In their eyes, I had lost a bit of credibility, and I told them we would try it another day. Well, the next day was a windy day, and uh, we drove to the park, and In the car, instead of asking Daddy if the kites would fly, my children told me, Daddy, would you pray and ask God that He would provide wind to make the kites fly? And God answered their prayers and my prayers, and we had a wonderful time. But I learned a very important lesson about trust that day. You know, we can talk about trust all day long. Put your trust in me. Oh, we put our trust in other things. But unless the object of our trust is able, then our trust in that object is futile. It's a wonderful lesson we need to learn. Unless the object of our trust is able to do what he has promised, then that trust in that person is futile. On that day when you place your trust in Jesus Christ dying for your sins and granting you salvation and eternal life You trusted that the almighty God is able to do what he has promised You put your life in his hands Your eternal destiny You made the most important decision of your life. And in that act, you're saying, Lord, I I trust you with my life. I give up control of working out my own salvation, realizing I can't save myself. And I place my salvation into your very hands. I trust that you will remember it when my life ends here on earth. But why is it that after we place our trust in the hands of Almighty God for our eternal lives, can we no longer trust him? In all the other aspects of our daily life Why is it that we can place in the hands of god our eternal security But we can't trust him with our finances. We can't trust him with our family issues As we continue our series entitled first encounter We've been looking at characteristics that should be evidenced in our life when we've had a true encounter with jesus christ things we should be doing as a result of a life transforming experience We've talked these past two weeks about the characteristics of adoration and evangelism And this morning we want to take a look at the characteristic of trust Let me just state that a true encounter with jesus christ should elicit in us A deep deep trust of our lord with our lives Because if we can trust him with our eternal security Can we not trust him in the everyday happenings of our life? How do we learn to trust the Lord when we've had a true encounter with Him? Let's take a look this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the Gospel of John? We're going to be looking at John chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 to 42. John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. And in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman. And here in this chapter, she will learn to trust the Lord. Let me just say when you place your trust on someone or something You want to know three things about that person And these three things will be the basis of our outline in our sermon this morning So if you're taking notes, here are the three points When you place your trust In someone you want to know three things about that person before you give your life to that person The first thing you want to know is does he love me? Is the object of my trust looking out for my best welfare or are they self-serving? It's a question not only of placing our trust in the Lord, placing our trust in our spouse, children placing our trust in the decisions of our parents. Do they love me? Is the object of my trust looking out for my best welfare? Do they want the best for me? Because if they're self-serving, if they don't want the best for me, why wouldn't in the world would I want to trust them? They're just out to get me. They're just trying to use me. The first question. The second question you want to ask when you place your trust on someone is, does he have the power to do what he says he will do? Does he have the power to do what he says he will do? Because anyone can promise the world, hey, if you invest your money with me, I will return your investment tenfold. Does that person have the ability and the power to make it come to pass? You've got to ask yourself that question before you put your trust in, in that individual. The third question you want to ask when you place your trust on someone is Does he know the future? Does he know the future? Because if I'm going to place my trust in the hands of someone else, I want to know that they know what I do not and cannot know, which is the future. Do they know the future? Because anyone can say, trust me, your life will be okay. Don't you worry. Everything's going to turn out all right. How do they know? Do they know the future? You put your trust in one who can answer the question, I know the future. In this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is someone who reveals himself as one in whom you can place your trust. And you can answer these three questions in the affirmative as it relates to Christ. Let's take a look. We begin in verse 3. Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey... Sat thus by the well It was about the sixth hour We find out that Jesus is on his way From Judea in the south To go to Galilee in the north But to go from Judea to Galilee He must pass through the region called Samaria And here in Samaria We find the so hated Samaritans Uh, Samaria was a place that the righteous Jews Would avoid at all costs Because the Samaritans lived there In fact, the Jews would take the longer route through Perea, east of the Jordan River, just to avoid the area of Samaria as they went from Jerusalem to Galilee. Now, why were the Samaritans hated by the Jews? The Jews looked upon them with disdain because the Samaritans were of mixed blood. They were not pure-blooded Jews like themselves. In fact, their religion was also mixed a hybrid of Judaism and those of their local culture, something we call syncretism. And their worship center was on Mount Gerizim instead of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But Jesus had no problem with this cultural prejudice. He went right through the region, taking the most direct route from Jerusalem to Galilee. And the Bible tells us that he stopped by a place called Sychar. It was about 6 p.m. in the evening and Jesus in his full humanity was tired and therefore he sat down at the well to rest and get a drink of water. And there he meets someone. Look at verse 7 to verse 9. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to Jesus, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water, and Jesus speaks to her. Can you imagine the shock of this woman to have Jesus talk to her? Not only that, but all those who are around watching this interaction. Because of the prejudice, it was frowned upon to have Jews and Samaritans talk to one another, much less between strangers, and especially in the public. A righteous Jew would rather go thirsty than break their moral principle of talking to the Samaritans. Even the Samaritan woman was surprised. She said to Jesus, you're not supposed to talk to me. Our peoples don't have dealings with each other. But here you can begin to sense the love of Jesus. His love overcoming the prejudicial thinking of that time. To reach out to this woman, who we're going to find out later, really needed a Savior. Lest you forget the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth. Luke 19 verse 10 tells us, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. This woman was about as lost as you can get. And Jesus reached out to her. Look at Jesus' reply in verse ten. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have added, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now Jesus had her attention. She would be wondering, Who is this man? What is this gift of God? And and what is this living water? As you know, when Jesus refers to living water, he's referring to the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, through himself, and with it, the Holy Spirit in one's life. Jesus offers the most precious gift he could offer to this woman who he's not even supposed to talk to culturally. And it's the very same gift he offers to each and every one of us. Because he loves her just as he loves all people. And this is a type of woman that's hard to love. In verses 11 to 12, this woman misunderstands what Jesus is talking about. She keeps thinking that he's referring to the water of the well. But in verse 13 and 14, Jesus answers and says to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus told the woman the water of the well would only provide temporary satisfaction, temporary relief from bodily thirst. But the water that I provide, completely satisfied. You see, the Holy Spirit who brings salvation to someone who believes, through him is granted living water that out of his life flows out. Satisfaction even in the lives of others as well. The offer of everlasting life, a life that brings more than temporary relief. It brings complete satisfaction. In these verses, I want you to see that Jesus is saying to this woman, Trust me, because this offer is based upon my unconditional love for you. I'm talking to you when I'm not supposed to be talking to you. I'm offering up something that is even better than what you didn't even offer me. Notice that the woman does not offer Jesus water at all. In fact, in this entire chapter, we don't ever find out that Jesus ever quenches his own thirst. But Jesus lays before this woman his greatest of gift, the gift of eternal life. This is a bit like how we are with Jesus in our relationship with God. God is rightfully wrathful at us because of our sin. He is angry. He cannot talk with us. He cannot be in fellowship with us. But he so loves us that he extends through his son the ability by which through his shed blood He can talk with us. It cost the life of His Son so that God could speak to us. It's a wonderment why we don't pray more often. We who have given nothing to our Lord don't even offer our lives to Him. He offers up something that is far better than what we have never given Him. He offers us His very best, His very own Son, to grant for us eternal life and all the beauty that is being in Christ. We are like this Samaritan woman. I wonder sometimes if we've forgotten that the gift of eternal life is based on God's unconditional love for us. If you ever doubt His love, read Romans chapter 8. Everything... That God does is based on his unconditional love for us even if we don't understand You see a lot of people are angry with God perhaps some of you this morning There are things that you're going through in your life that is really a time of tribulation and trial and you wonder God Do you not love me anymore? Are you angry with me? my friends If he would die in your place why would you think he would not want to give you his very best? You see, people don't trust God because somehow they think God has an in, in it for them. That God wants to give them his worst. He died for you. He purchased you with his blood. He loves you unconditionally. He wants to give you his very best. That's not to say that our actions don't bring with it consequences. Sin always has consequences. And there are certain things that are happening in our life because God is disciplining us. It is the result of our own sin. Do not blame God and question His love because of the actions that you take and in which you have to live with the consequence. But the reality is God loves us deeply we can never outrun the love of god in fact the very character of god is love first john tells us how wonderful it is to know that there is not one thing you can do today that will make god that will make god love you more or less isn't that wonderful there's not one thing you can do today that will make god love you more or make you love him less you don't have to prove yourself to him We live for him as an act of worship in response to what he's done. But he loves us unconditionally and he wants the very best for us. Why is this the first test of trust? Why do we place our trust in one who loves us? You see, the gods of Greek mythology and the gods of Roman mythology and the Viking gods and the gods of all the other cultures and civilizations, they are not gods who love their people. They want their people to love them, to adore them, they play around with their people. There is not a God, Slittle G, in all the cultures of this world. I would die on behalf of the very subjects. But we can place our trust in the one who has died for us, who loves us unconditionally. And so when we place our lives in his hand, we know, we know for a fact that it will be for the best. The test of trust, does he love me, is answered by Jesus' unconditional love. I do love you. It's not through spoken words. It's through my outstretched arms on a cross. I love you this much. I love you this much. The second test of trust is found in verses 15 to 19. The woman said to Jesus, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come down here to draw. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to Jesus, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet perhaps spiritually blinded, this Samaritan woman still thinks that Jesus is talking about the well water. She said, give me this water, this living water, thinking it's something she could drink or something that she would never have to go to the well and do the backbreaking work of drawing water anymore. Jesus had to teach her about trust by showing her a bit of his power. And he does so by showing her how he knows everything about her. Go get your husband, he says. She says, I have none. Jesus says, you have said, truthfully, you have none, but you have had five husbands. Maybe she killed all five, I don't know. But she had a messed up married life. Five husbands, and the one with whom you are living with is not even your husband. Now, now don't think Jesus is trying to shame her, but showing her that she was living a life of sin. And that she needed a savior, she needed salvation. Forget the regular water, you need something more. The living water that would cleanse her from her sins. Would she trust him? Jesus showed her that he was all-powerful. Could, he could even look into her life and know everything about her. You see, the second test of trust is, does he have the power And absolutely, Jesus has the power. My friends, do you believe that God knows everything about you? Do you believe that he is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent? Do you believe that he is sovereign? Do you believe that he is able to do what he says He's able to do? Because however big your God is, is how much you will trust him. That is why it is important to answer the question yourself, what do I believe about God? You see... If you believe that your God is very small, that he is limited in what he can do, then you will trust him very little. But if you believe that your God is very big, then you will trust him with your entire life. But the reality for many of us, although the words that come out of our mouth says, Lord, I trust you, our God in our mind is very little, very small. And so we trust him very little. But remember your first encounter with God? You acknowledge that he's able to conquer death, that he's able to to come back to life, that he's able to save you from your sins. If he's able to do all that, that's a pretty awesome God, the Almighty God. Could you not trust him with the everyday things of your life? There's a story of a man who fell over a cliff as he tumbled down the sheer drop, he managed to grab onto a, a scrubby brush, bush growing out from the side of the rock. Uh, terrified, he hung onto that bush with all of his life as his life flashed before him. In desperation, he shouted towards heaven, Is there anyone up here to which astonished a voice floated down? I am the Lord God and I am here. What should I do, called the man. Save me. The voice replied, let go of the branch. And with my protection, you will float harmlessly down to the beach below. The man glanced under his feet to the jagged rocks at the foot of the cliff, hundreds of meters below. He gulped and looked back towards heaven. Is there anyone else up there? You know, that's how it is we deal with God. Lord, we trust you. But when we say we trust you, you've got to tell us what's going to happen. And we want to know what it is so that we can choose if we want to follow or not. That is not trust. Do you believe he has the power to grant you eternal life? If so, that means he also has the power to deal with your everyday problems. The second test of trust that Jesus answers very clearly is I have the power to do what I said I can do. And so the responsibility is on us. Do we yield control to him? In America, when you learn to drive, you sign up for a driver's education class. Uh, Your parents can teach you, but the reality is most parents don't want to die early, and so they sign their children up for driver's ed classes. The driver's ed classes uh, are equipped with special cars. I don't think they have them here in the Philippines, but in these cars uh, where you learn to drive, there are two sets of steering wheels, one on the driver and passenger side, um, two brake pedals, uh, and two acceleration pedals. Everything is automatic there. It's a no-clutch system. And the reality is uh, these student drivers, as you know, do not know how to drive. And the instructors also want to live. Uh, And so when uh, these student drivers drive and they make a mistake or they're going too fast or they panic and forget to brake, the instructor sitting on the passenger side can override the controls uh, of the student passengers and and press down upon the brake uh, or swerve to avoid uh, another car. Uh, But since you don't have that, uh, it places greater trust on you That first day, you let your child drive you around, right? You know how it is. Your child gets behind that wheel, and uh, you're nervous, and he's happy or she's happy. And kids, you can really make your parents uh, uh, real nervous. You can just turn over to them and say, hey, do you trust me? Uh, The reality is, let me tell you what, they are pressing the brakes with you. They're pressing it harder than you. Uh, I knew that uh, my parents, Dad trusted me more than my mother did, especially the first few years I began to drive. When I drove, my father would fall right asleep. He would snore. He would just relax, but not my mother. She was wide awake, always telling me to slow down, watch out for this car and that car. Many times I wanted to say, you know, Mom, you drive if you don't trust me. No, 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 no. We trust you. You drive. I'm just being your second eye. So it is when it comes to God. We say to the Lord, Lord, you know what? We know we wrest control out of our own hands and we place it in your hands. But we really don't trust him. You see, when it comes to the control of our lives, there's only one steering wheel, one brake pedal, one acceleration pedal. And if we're going to try to override everything that God does, He's going to say, you know what? You drive. But if God is all powerful in what he's able to do, I would think you would want him to drive so that you can sit back, close your eyes, and relax. The test of trust comes when we understand the one in whom we place our trust in. If he is able to do all that he has promised in his very character, what in the world do you have to worry about? The third test of trust is found in verse 20 to 26. The response of the Samaritan was very interesting. After acknowledging that Jesus was a prophet, someone of power, instead of confessing her sins and repenting, She threw out a theological issue for Jesus to answer. Look at verse 20. We call this a herring, just kind of a, a, a sidebar. She said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. You see, there was an ancient dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews about the place of worship and where they were to offer sacrifices. The Samaritans believe it was on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews believe it was on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Who was right? Would Jesus wade into this theological controversy? Look at the response of Jesus in verse 21 to 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. He says the time is coming in the future in reference to his death when there will be a new dispensation, a new way for God to do things where worship is no longer centered on temples like those on Mount Gerizim or on Mount Zion because it now comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. When the Messiah come, he says, the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. We've read that Many a times in our responsive reading, do you ever know what exactly you're reading? Or what does that mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Well, let's break this down. When you worship in truth, it means you worship God through Jesus. The only way to come to the Father. John chapter 14 verse 6 is very clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when we worship in truth, we worship the one who gives us access to God the Father. You see, everyone is worshiping. Many people are worshiping other gods of different religions. And some of them are more devoted than us. Some of them are willing to do more than we even do for our own Lord. But you can be genuine in your worship, but you can be genuinely wrong. In verse 22, Jesus tells a Samaritan woman Salvation comes to the Jews. The person of Jesus, who's from the lineage of Abraham, it was a privilege for the Jewish people to birth the Savior. And so you will find the truth through Jesus, a Jew. And so he was saying that the Samaritan religion was an error. But you must worship the Lord as true worshipers in truth. One can be genuine, but they can be genuinely wrong. After the first few days of driving my children around the great vast highways of Texas, where very few cars because of the great highway system, you could travel very quickly, 80, 90 miles per hour. I asked my children, what's your impression of America? America. One of my sons asked me, Daddy, why is everyone poor in the US? I said, That's quite odd to ask. I asked him, Why would you say that? Why would you think that everyone is poor in America? He said, Daddy, I think they're poor because there are no cars on the road. That's quite a good observation. I said, what do you think about the Philippines? He says, there's so many cars. Everyone's rich. (laughs) I didn't want to argue with him. I'll tell him when he gets a little bit older. But for one who's been there for the first time, you know why he can make that assessment. One can be genuine, but genuinely wrong. When we worship the Father, we do so in truth. It must be through the Son. We must worship the Messiah. The other aspect of worship is in spirit. More than the locations, more than the fellowship hall, more than the sanctuary, more than Mount Gerizim, more than Jerusalem, God is looking for those who live and worship through the spirit, people who have a heart for worship. God is a spirit and so God sees into our very hearts and He knows if your coming here is authentic or is simply going through the motions. He knows as you're sitting there, if your heart is tuned towards worship or if you're falling asleep. That's why we pray, Lord, would you fill this place in, and fill our hearts? Because the place of worship is not the issue. It is the attitude and the heart it is the content that springs forth out of our life that is of most important this wonderful truth to the samaritan woman was earth-shattering for her she wanted this she saw a glimmer of hope that the jews and the samaritans could perhaps come together there's now hope for her look at her response in verse 25 26 The woman said to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The response of the woman was to long for the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. She was looking for one who would solve all of their problems to explain everything to them. She was looking for someone, in her point of reference, someone in the future... And Jesus comes and he says in verse 26, I am that person. You see, this speaks to our third test of truth in that Jesus reveals himself as the one who is, and from her perspective, the future Messiah. And through the revelation of his death and the coming of the Holy Spirit shows that he knows the future because he controls it. In divine wisdom, the Lord Jesus Christ answers the question that was a source of contention, but points her to the future that what God the Father has in store. When you place your trust in someone, you want to know that they know the future, that they hold the future in their hands. That's why we can't place our trust in people, because they do not know what the future holds. Any expert, when they give you advice, especially as it relates to the future things, is only giving you their best educated guess. Before I became a pastor, I dealt with many stock traders and financial analysts. They are trained extensively to study the fundamentals of the financial market, to even study trends, historical trends, 5 years, 10 years, 30 years since inception. But their advice is always using their best assessments. That's why if you want to purchase stock or mutual funds or any other financial investments, there's always printed, oftentimes very small, past performance is not indicative of future performance, right? You know that. Because no one knows. If they knew... They would have predicted all the stock market crashes. But you know the smart ones? They always play both sides. They hedge their bets against both losses and gains. Now, I'm not going to tell you how they do it, but uh, it's in the area of the derivatives market. They make margin calls and short certain things. They hedge their bets. So whether you earn money or you lose money, they make money. They don't know they're only making their best educated guess. So whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a financial analyst, when you're talking or any other profession talking about the future, you're only make, they're only making educated guess. And why is it that we would rather trust the experts of, these, of this world who are giving their best guess than place our trust in the one who not only knows the future, he is the one who controls it. Think about that. You will learn to trust my friends when you learn to acknowledge that he knows the future. Well, What is the result of the revelation that Jesus is the one who loves her, is all-powerful, and knows the future? Look at verse 28 to 30. The woman then left her water pot went her way into the city and told and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. This is what we talked about last week when we talked about evangelism. When she has had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, she could not wait to tell all of her friends about the fact that the living water which he's offering is better than the water from the well. Excited, passionate, that she forgot her own water pot. And they do come. Look at verse 40 to 42. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe. Not because of what you said. For we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the christ the savior of the world they too had a personal encounter with jesus christ he stayed with them two days and there he showed them just how much he loved them and there he showed them how powerful he was he told them about what the future holds for them And they said, we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. They placed their trust in him. What about you? The day you made a personal decision to place your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you did so. Because you answered these three questions in the affirmative. You said, my Lord loves me. He loves me unconditionally. He sent his son to die in my place. You said he is all-powerful because he has promised me eternal life, a resurrected, glorified body, and that he has the future in his hand because I know it will come to past. So why is it that although we trusted him in our first encounter, do we no longer trust him with our everyday lives? My friends, if you can trust him for your salvation you can trust him to deal with your marriage problems. You can trust him to deal with your children. You can trust him to deal with your financial issues. You can trust him to deal with your anger issues. You can trust him to deal with your colleagues. You can trust him to deal with your work issues. You see, if people around you can't see that you trust God for your everyday problems, why in the world would they believe That you trusted God for your eternal salvation. It must be consistent. Jesus Christ will not force himself upon us, he waits for our invitation. He's asking us to give him control of our lives so that we can sit back and relax while he drives our life. Can we do that? Can we give him control of our life and acknowledge that he knows what he is doing? So don't worry so much. Sit back, relax. Because the God who drives our life is the one who has died for us. The one who has everything under control because he's all-powerful and the one who who holds our future in his hands. Let us trust until the day we see him. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord, this morning. A wonderful reminder for all of us that if we can place our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior to give us everlasting life in this most important decision of our life, than every other decision of our life, we can also place in your hands. Help us to yield our life. We like to be in control, we like to be the one driving. But help us to understand that there is a better driver of our life, one to whom we can fully trust because he is all powerful. He has the best in store for us, and he knows. he's driving to. Help us to learn to trust so that we can sit back and relax and enjoy the journey we call life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.